and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. My name is Pavan Sukhdev. Uh, my company is Just Advisory, and we measure impacts. We measure impacts for companies, for governments, uh, for investors, and we tell them what is their real impact on society, not just profits for shareholders, but their impacts on stakeholders, including employees, including nature, including the communities and the countries in which they live. I've been doing this kind of work for many years and uh, involved with projects from the United Nations, such as the Green Economy Report, which I was the lead author of, and uh, the TEEB Report, the Economics of Ecosystems and Biodiversity, for which I was a study leader. And uh, these days, amongst my other activities, is that I'm the president of WWF International and therefore chair of their board at WWF. So with all your different hats on, in, in all your guises, you clearly have great insight into the problems. We know our current food systems are having significant negative environmental and ecological impacts. In a recent article, you say the food system is broken. You talk about its collateral damage on nature. Perhaps you could articulate just how bad a place you think we are currently in and why. Yes, it's it's an important area. And um, to be honest, um, food systems have huge dependencies on nature, whether it's nutrients or fresh water or the pollination provided by insects. These are all contributions of nature to food systems. And without the natural context, they wouldn't survive. And, and especially in the developing world where constructed alternatives in irrigation and power are not available that easily. So firstly, food systems depend very significantly on nature, especially in the developing world, especially in context of fragile lands. And secondly, food systems have the biggest, the biggest impacts on nature of anything else. Let's let's look at uh, land use change and deforestation. Frankly, commodity food systems uh, such as the loss of rainforest due to palm oil, the loss of rainforests and other lands due to beef and soya. Uh, these are big commodity agricultural impacts on nature, which are bigger than any other. And if we look at other sides of nature, including climate, then around half of climate emissions, people think it's 24%, that's the official number, because they're looking only at the farm. But food systems are not just farms. It's also the forests and the lands that were cleared to grow the the, the corn and the soya to feed the beef and the area cleared for cattle. And then it's the processing of the meat and other food products and the transportation costs of that in terms of climate emissions and the waste. And one third of food that is grown uh, is actually wasted and on average. And with all of those, and there's more than half the climate impacts are basically food systems. So whether you look at deforestation, whether you look at uh, eutrophication, which happens thanks to conventional forms of farming, which are intense users of chemical pesticides and fertilizers, and that leads to eutrophication and uh, impacts on nature. Or whether you look at climate emissions, you find that actually food systems seem to have the lion's share of those impacts on nature. Um, 
yes, my company just is also involved in measuring those impacts. So we really are aware of how serious this uh, challenge. That was going to be my second and, and next question, which is, how serious is it? And perhaps you can identify, or perhaps they are all similarly causing a threat, which areas of our food systems are most damaging? If I were to uh, pick on on uh, areas, I would say some of the commodity-based uh, uh, farming enterprises, whether they are growing uh, um, basically palm oil, and then I would say commodities such as soya and uh, and corn, which are mainly grown not to feed people, but to feed cattle. Um, And then finally, cattle, in other words, beef. I mean, if we look at just just the beef industry, it's quite remarkable. Their use of land is humongous. According to the Food and Agricultural Organization, that's the UN body, um, they published a report uh, way back in 2009 called Livestock's Long Shadow. And among its remarkable statistics were that 26% 26% of the land on earth, that is other than the North Pole and the South Pole, is actually committed in one form or the other to growing meat. And most of that is beef, actually. And uh, that includes not just large farms, but also public areas which are committed to grazing and so on, com- communal areas growing for grazing. On top of that, one third of the 12% of land that grows uh, other food, which is grain, food grains mainly, is also basically growing feedstock for livestock. So if you add that up, 26% and 4%, that's 30% of the land on earth is basically committed in a glorified way to being a cattle ranch, um, basically providing meat for people. There's another 10%, of course, of land on earth, which is growing uh, food crops and vegetables and so on and so forth. So altogether, 40% of the land on earth is basically growing human food. And, and uh, it's been expanding over time. And that's part of the challenge is how do, you, how do you get better productivity from these lands so that we can feed a growing human population, uh, which is already looking at, uh, uh, I mean, it's above 7, 7 billion as we speak and, and heading towards the 8, 9 billion range in 2050 by conservative estimates and could be more according to some. So how do we feed more people, give them more nutrients, uh, more healthy food, whilst not significantly worsening our damage costs on the environment and on on nature. That's the challenge, and I think there are solutions actually. Well, let's let's look at the solutions. I mean, it's extraordinary hearing you say about the amount of land that's given over to providing us with meat and to farming. Some people suggest the solution is that we should dramatically reduce our consumption of meat, but is that the solution? Well, I think I think the the reduction in the use of meat as part of human diets would certainly be. I mean, any any doctor who's who's uh, not not paid by a meat company or or a fertilizer and pesticide company will tell you tell you that. So I think the the connection between healthy, balanced diets, which have got more vegetable content uh, and uh, protein. By the way. All protein is made by, not by animals, it's made by plants. And animals only concentrate protein in their bodies. We don't make protein. So you do get proteins by consuming plants. And that's a common fiction that people don't seem to understand that, oh, how will you get protein if you don't eat meat? Well, you will, because everything that grows has some protein or the other. And uh, some things have more, like pulses, and some things have less. Uh, So 
it's not a problem. So essentially, it is true that if we if we could, as a people, as as a as a human community around the planet, understand what we are doing to the environment, thanks to our excessive focus on meat as a source of protein, we would achieve two things. Firstly, we would achieve a dramatic reduction in the loss of nature. Secondly, we would achieve a dramatic reduction in the in the greenhouse gas emissions that are also driven quite extensively by the same by the same production. And there is a little third as well. Thirdly, we would also achieve common sense. By the way, did you know that all of the meat that we talk about, which is basically using up 30% of the land on earth. In other words, three-fourths of the land that is in agricultural uh, areas, agriculture or, or, or uh, animal husbandry, three-fourths of the land that is used to grow food for human beings is actually growing meat. But that meat is only providing 27% of the protein that human beings eat. So just imagine, 75% of the land being used to grow meat, providing only 27% of the protein. And yet, the meat industry keeps talking about how it's so important to eat meat for protein. So what's actually happening is that the rest of the world who doesn't eat that much meat is making use of fish, pulses, and all kinds of vegetable foods which provide protein. So we need to get our facts straightened out, and there's enough science behind here. But it's it's like a, a football match, right? On the one side, there's science, and on the other, there is the marketing and advertising machines of the big uh, food companies, fertilizer companies, pesticide companies who are all committed to the current forms of production. That's the big challenge that we face today. People are bombarded by a combination of occasional snippets of good sense from some scientists and a huge lot of rubbish by marketing and advertising agencies on behalf of their their advertisers. That's And unfortunately, people are not wise enough to make the right choices. That's really interesting. And again, where I wanted to move on to next, I mean, you say there are solutions and that we're not so far advanced along the destructive path that we can't go back. But is it not hard to get big business and governments on board when they potentially stand to benefit too much from the broken system as it is? The food system is broken, absolutely, uh, except for those who make pesticides, fertilizers, and, and, uh, you know, and meat processing. And, and so that's, it's a question of it's a food system that's only working for the purpose of profit for a small number of very large corporations. That's today's food system. What it should be, actually, and Hannah, is a food system which delivers nutrition to people and all people and no one should be denied a healthy diet simply because you know it's not available or it's too expensive or you know it's it's, it's basically uh, pumped full of of uh, um, antibiotics because that's what the the meat is being pumped full of um, or hormones and so on or or because uh, pricing and and subsidies are favoring this form of chemical based production what should, all, what should actually be happening is that we should realize a couple of basic fundamental points, which is number one, the big corporations and the big, the big farming enterprises are not the ones who are solving food security. That's part of their marketing bullshit, right? Uh, so they keep talking about how they are essential for food security, whereas the reality is that almost 80% of the food that is consumed in food insecure regions is grown right there. It's not grown by large corporations delivering stuff to the poor. That's not the way it works, right? So, and this, it, this, uh, this four-fifths of the, the food that is consumed in food insecure region is grown there largely by small farms, in fact. It's grown by the people who are themselves affected by food insecurity very often. So this is, this is the nature of what happens. 
if you look at small farming, 60% of the land on earth that is committed to farming is actually small farms. When I say small, by the way, I'm using the FAO definition of less than two hectares per plot. So any, any farm that is less than two hectares, which frankly is the size of a large backyard in, in some of the, uh, the large houses that people live in nowadays. Um, so um, it's not a lot of land. Now, typically, if it's in the developed world and uh, among the rich communities, that would be what would be called a hobby farm. But typically in the developing world, that is your farm, that is your livelihood. And the total number of people who are employed in agriculture is more than 1.3 billion. But out of that, a billion of them are employed in small farms. So small farms are providing not just half the food on the planet and using 60-odd percent of the land uh, that is used for agriculture, but they're also providing a billion jobs. And there is no other industry which even provides a tenth of that, frankly. This is this the world's single largest employer, and people behave and econ economists talk as if somehow or the other you could just redeploy and re-employ these people in something else. Now, what is that something else? The total number of jobs in the auto sector is, is only 15 million. The total number of jobs in steel is, is six or seven million, and so also are the total number of jobs in information technology and so on and so forth. So the total number of jobs that are available in all of these sort of great production engineering sectors are a tiny fraction of what is provided by small-scale farming. So the solution isn't to destroy small-scale farming and somehow replace it and turn those people into you know, uh, information technology engineers. For heaven's sakes, you can't do that. These are poor people living at the margins in, in, in insecurity and living in, in stressed environments in the developing world. They are not able to convert themselves into auto engineers and, and technology engineers. That isn't going to happen. So people should stop you know, pretending as if industrialization is a solution to, to progress in the developing world. The real solution is in getting small farming right, which means ensuring that today's small farmer has higher yield, has less risk, right now is hugely exposed to risk because of climate change, and has fairer prices. Higher yield, lower risk, fairer prices. All policy objectives in developing countries, which are from the agricultural department or the commerce department or whatever department, they should be looking at these things. What can we do to make small farming successful? And frankly, the answers are convert small farmers into natural farming because they get all of those three things. Natural farming, and you asked about solutions, has been tried out. And by the way, the word natural farming has many different alternative uh, nomenclatures. I think in the US, it's known as regenerative farming. In other places, like in Japan, it's called the one straw revolution and so on. So it has different names in different places. In India, they call it zero budget natural farming. Now, they, 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 the term for it now is community managed natural farming because community is actually a very important part of the natural farming experiment. And the whole premise of natural farming is, again, going back to the topic of our conversation, which is nature and biodiversity. We need to understand that farming is about biology, not chemistry. That fundamental understanding is at the base of all of this natural farming, regenerative farming that we are talking about here. It produces higher yield. It does so at lower risk. And so long as markets collaborate, market participants collaborate, yes, it will give those farmers fairer prices as well. So the the opportunity is sitting right there in front of us under our noses. Tell us a little bit more perhaps then about natural farming. How does it work? How does it actually yeah. work? Yeah, let, let me give you an actual example with which I've had the privilege to be connected for uh, several years now and I've visited them five times. This is in the state of Andhra Pradesh, which is in India. 
it's the state which has uh, more than 55 million people and out of those 6 million people are farmers. And as we speak now, around 700,000 farmers have signed up to this transition from chemical farming, so so-called, you know, from the days of the Green Revolution where it was all about ensuring, you know, rotation crops and putting lots of uh, fertilizers and pesticides. Transitioning away from that into farming, which is essentially using locally produced natural ingredients like cow dung, cow urine, food waste, and, you know, basically things that think this is essentially to create bacterial content and bacterial life in the soil. Fundamentally, plants grow because they are able to get minerals and suspensions from the soil because of bacterial activity. Bacteria break up these, the minerals, the whole of soil is minerals, by the way. We don't have to put in more minerals into the soil. Typically, there should be enough. Plants have been growing for over a billion years without the help of chemical companies, fertilizer companies, and pesticide companies, right? It's only in the last 50 years that we've seen this transition. So plants know how to grow, trust me. They really do, and they've done it for a billion years, and they'll keep doing it if we let them. The way they do it is that they they get nutrients from the soil, which are processed by bacteria, by funguses, by nematodes, by worms. And there's a whole living system under the soil, which is soil biology. It is the soil biology that delivers food to the plant and... In order to feed that soil biology, in order to feed the bacteria that are in the soil, the plant in turn returns a third of the, the sugars that it produces in its leaves and, 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 and it, in its uh, stems and so on. So basically all of the nutrients that the plant is, is sucking up from the soil, some of them are actually being returned in terms of food for the bacteria, which is the sugar. So root systems of plants exude, is, is the term for it, they exude about a third of the, the sugars that they manufacture in, in their leaf systems. So this is actually already happening. Now, what natural farming does, what regenerative farming does, is to reinstate soil biology by saying that, okay, let's make collections of, of manure and cow urine and put into things waste which has got uh, food for bacteria, basically making bacterial soups out of these natural products and essentially pouring that bacterial soup back into the soil to pet, get bacteria back in the soil to get the, the soil biology to be reactivated and to deliver the nitrogen and, and the minerals that the plant needs through natural processes, which it will do more and more effectively. I've seen this working and I've seen uh, crop cutting experiments carried on in the state of Andhra Pradesh for the last several years. And the results are absolutely marvelous. So they are increased, there are increased yields in rice, which is their main crop, along across all eight strains of rice that are grown out there. There are increased yields in groundnuts, which is their largest crop from value point of view. And there are increased yields in all of the cash crops they grow, including chilies. And there are increased yields in, in, in the fruit that they grow, uh, such as pomegranates, mangoes, and papayas. So across the entire, and of course in maize as well. So maize is the only one where there's not, there's kind of variable results of some places higher yield, others lower yield. But in all of the other crops, rice and groundnuts and, and uh, vegetables and, and fruit, the yields are higher. The food is healthier, so it's got it's free of chemicals, so it doesn't in any way negatively impact human health for the consumer. And because they're not using pesticides, but they are using natural formulations again, some of which include uh, neem, uh, Azadiracta indica. It's a, it's a tree that grows in India, which has a well-known property it's been written about of being an insect repellent, basically neutralizes insect, insect systems. Um, uh, so they use that and they use tobacco and half a dozen other formulations. And in fact, there are almost 200 across the state. There are, someone 
did a study that accounted for almost uh, 200 different kinds of uh, locally uh, effective uh, pesticides that are made naturally, not chemically made, not manufactured chemicals. So it is not only possible, it is already happening. Typically, it takes two, three years for this conversion. That's the typical process. The whole thing works because of people, because of communities, because of a network that's called the RYSS. Uh, It's essentially a government organization that is led by an ex-civil servant. So they've used women as the agents of change. They've empowered women to grow more food, earn higher yields, earn better prices. They're doing all that essentially because they believe that an alternative is not only possible, it's on its way. So the problem is going back to what you said at the beginning about the narrative and the narrative and the information being so wrong out there. Yes. How optimistic are you? You've seen how it can work. Yes. Do you think that you can get the people that matter on board to make this more widespread? Can governments get on board? Are they listening? How can you get the message right and out? Do you feel optimistic that the solutions are going to be taken up by everybody and all the people that matter? I am optimistic, but I'm not suggesting that I'm optimistic because the path is easy. The path needs to be fought. And I think the fight in India is, is moving well uh, in the sense that um, the government of Andhra Pradesh, not just the previous government when, when this scheme began, but the current government. So can you imagine two different parties in government both believe in serving the people enough to want the right kind of agriculture, which is natural farming. So they both supported this and that's remarkable and that's a good sign that, you know, normally what happens in, in, a, in a system in most countries is that the first thing that the new government does is to reject all the programs of the previous government, which, you know, which is now in opposition. This didn't happen in Andhra Pradesh. The, the current chief minister had the wisdom to keep the gem that he saw in front of him, which, which was the natural farming system. Uh, so I think that's good. The, the prime minister of India is a great supporter personally of natural farming, and he's been on record saying so. And, and so indeed is the, is the finance minister of India. So there are, there are many champions within the Indian government and the national government, I mean, who are also supportive of this whole approach. And they understand that this has huge benefits to the exchequer because Fertilizer subsidies are massive. If you look at urea, for instance, uh, there was a time when urea subsidies were almost 80% when I studied it uh, several years ago. And I think they've gone down to 60, 70% now, but they're still pretty high. That's the subsidy for urea. And this is a huge, huge cost to the exchequer. Imagine the, the fiscal benefit of transitioning away from these subsidized pesticides and fertilizers into a system where basically you are, if you are subsidizing anything, it is essentially incomes in the hands of small farmers and you're directly achieving your benefit of reducing poverty. Imagine that instead of just making more profits for a few more shareholders and a few more, uh, you know, uh, chemical pesticides and fertilizer firms. I mean, I'd love to imagine it. I think everybody would. And I feel very repetitive, I suppose, to ask the same question. Do you think it works beyond India? Can we get the message right and across and the people that matter on board, the people you describe for whom their main interest is profit. Yeah, absolutely. It's not in their interest to make less profits. Uh, Sorry, when I said their interest, it is in their long-term interest for their stakeholders, for them to make profits for shareholders, but not at the expense of losses for stakeholders. Today, that's what is happening. If you look at today's food systems, they are broken from every perspective, whether it's climate or freshwater usage or human health, and from human health especially, because the purpose of food is to give us health. It's absurd that it is doing the opposite. It's absurd that you know we have, we have been marketed foods which are so rich in, in sugar that we end up having, uh, basically, we, we, we have epidemic-sized problems 
uh, with diabetes and obesity, and, and not just for adults, for children. I mean, some of the work that I've done in Australia has, has taught me that uh, there is a, a ch- childhood diabetes epidemic going on right now as we speak in Victoria and the cities, in Melbourne, for instance. And uh, that's, that's, that's tragic for that to be happening simply because of the amount of sugar that's being con- consumed because so much of it is produced because that makes a lot of profits for uh, those who are in the commodity sugar trade and the providers of fertilizers and pesticides to that trade. So they, we have all the wrong incentives in place. And unfortunately, this whole system of um, companies being able to report profits and CEOs becoming champions in, and darlings of the press simply because they've reported a few seasons of good earnings has to stop because they need to start reporting reality. The reality is not just their impacts on shareholders, but their impacts on stakeholders, which means report your externalities, not just your profits. The externalities of today's food systems include the very severe health costs of the kind, of the tragic kind that I have just mentioned, which is obesity and diabetes for the excessive consumption of sugar. The consumption of uh, dairy products includes all kinds of uh, uh, antibiotic resistance cases because of the excessive use of antibiotics for for, uh, cattle and so on and so forth. And the list is almost endless. These results, these impacts on human health are the negative externalities of today's corporations who are involved in what I call yesterday's food system, which we're still carrying on. It's the walking dead. It will collapse because if without it collapsing, people will have to have to collapse. And uh, that would be a greater tragedy. I'd rather lose a few corporations and a few CEOs than lose entire populations to ill health. Well, I couldn't agree more. So what next? How optimistic are you about the next five or 10 years as they stretch out? How long do you think we have? And could we perhaps be on a better, more upwards path? Well, I, I mean, I think, I think time is measured in negative years now because we, we, are, we are at a point where we have been so unwise for so long that, to be honest, this problem has to be solved yesterday, but we, we must carry on. So I'm delighted that the Clusters Forum is, has picked this particular theme because, to me, it is, it is a vitally important theme. The, the, the health of, of the planet is connected to the health of people. I mean... Maybe we need it. We, we are so we call ourselves Homo sapiens, but can you imagine this so-called proud species, which calls itself thinking man or or, or knowledgeable man, uh, needs a tiny virus with no brains to remind it what that means? So we need to think about the connection between na- nature's health and people's health. And COVID nineteen has taught us yet again is the fourth major coronavirus that's affected us. It's finally taught us that there is a connection. We need to address human health and make sure that. We don't live in disharmony with nature because living in disharmony with nature is exactly what has caused us to uh, receive a virus which actually lives in different wild species and has been transferred, we don't quite know, but maybe through bats, maybe through other means. But clearly a transmission that has happened through our, our ingress into the lands which should have been wild lands and our dependence on, uh, on habits of food consumption which include wild animals or putting wild animals in the same place as, as, um, as uh, grown animals and so on. So I think we need to learn and absorb from this what, where we went wrong and what we can do right, which is to change our food system, change the way we behave and think about food and recognize that there are solutions and that they can scale. We just need to stop this juggernaut of corporate profitability at the expense of all else. I think without that, and that, that has to be a people's movement. So I think 
Plasters Forum is driven by that kind of thinking. And I'm very pleased that you are focusing on, in my opinion, what is your most important theme, which is food systems. Pavan, thank you so very much for joining us. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for calling us. 